I do want to start by saying, as we think about forgiveness, you know, forgiveness is one of those things that we're going to see in the story of Joseph that isn't always easy to do. But it is a very clear teaching and command for us in Scripture. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus would say this, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Meaning it's a, it's a heavy and weighty truth to think about forgiveness. And I want to recognize that it's easy for us to say we are called to forgive. But I want to be the first to admit in the room today that that is not always easy to apply to our lives. I want to recognize that. And so if you at any point, as I talk about forgiveness and go, you know what, you just don't know what I've gone through. And so therefore, it's hard for you to kind of really speak this into my life. I don't know what you've gone through. But I'll admit that if this is hard for you to process into your life, it's hard for all of us. Because here's one thing I do know. Every single person in this room has been sinned against meaning someone has hurt you and you have had to apply forgiveness to someone in different modes of severity. I recognize that. But this is something that all of us have experience of trying to process. But as we come to Genesis 42, I want us to see, this is, this is one of my favorite chapters in all of Scripture because it's this moment where after 13 years of being a slave and then in prison, then seven years of reigning. So let's do math. That's 20 years. And then two years into the famine, Joseph's brothers show up. So 22 years since the last time he saw his brothers and they sold him into slavery, he is now on the throne and his brothers come walking in the room. There's this moment where he recognizes them. And Genesis 42, seven says this, Joseph saw his brothers And recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. I want you to do your best because I've already kind of given you the ending of the story where we see Joseph forgive his brothers. And when we read the story from Genesis 42 all the way into first or chapter 45, where he does forgive his brothers, sometimes it's hard for us to recognize that. Uh, that there's been months and if not a year or two gone by in between Genesis 42 and the moment he forgives his brothers. Meaning, I'm imagining, based off the text, if we're trying to recognize it, not thinking that he's guaranteed to forgive them, 22 years later, you see the group of people who planned your murder and then at the last minute decided not to kill you but instead sell you into slavery, you see them walk in the door, my first reaction is anger, bitterness, maybe some anxiety, maybe a little bit of PTSD, thinking through like all of a sudden you're in shock with what you're seeing. There's not this immediate like, oh, I'm so happy to see you. I don't think that was the case. And, we don't, and the text doesn't allude that Joseph was in As we get to chapter 45, we see a forgiving Joseph, but in this immediate situation, it says he saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. We come from the land of Canaan to buy food. Why am I bringing this up? I'm bringing it up because I want to point out that as we want to celebrate the forgiveness that Joseph has, I want us to also go on the journey that 
the text reveals of what's going on in Joseph's heart as he gets to the point of forgiveness. Meaning that forgiveness is not always immediate. Forgiveness is not always easy. But it is a journey that we must go on and Scripture calls us to go on. So then look at verse 8. What does he do? He speaks harshly to them. It says, verse 8, Joseph recognized his brothers. This is Genesis 42, 8. He recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. 22 years later, I imagine not. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. Notice the claim that he's giving. He's giving a claim that is worthy of putting them in prison. He sees his brothers. He speaks harshly to them. And I imagine, this would be true for me, so it wouldn't be that hard to imagine. My my first thought is, oh, I can now get revenge. You put me in prison for 13 years, you're spies. I'm about to throw you in prison. We don't know this exactly what he's thinking because it doesn't tell us exactly what he's thinking. It just tells us what he says. So I'm reading into it a little bit, but it wouldn't be that hard to imagine that this might be what he is thinking. And they said, we are all sons of one man. We are honest men. I imagine he's going, you think you are. You say you are, but I know what's up. Like imagine what's going through his mind. Your servants have never been spies. And he said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, we, your servants, our 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this, you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let them bring your brother while you remain confined that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are all spies. And look what he did. And he put them all in custody or prison for three days. Now imagine what's going through Joseph's heart. Here's what I like to think, based off the text. He is going about life 22 years later. He's doing okay. He probably doesn't think about his brothers all that often. He's doing pretty good. Maybe he does, but it's not immediately in the same way that you just have that history, that traumatic experience come walk through the doors. And your first reaction may not be the best reaction. Your first reaction is to speak roughly to them, is to accuse them of things, is to test them. And then for no reason, it's just to throw them in prison for three days. Just throw them in prison. And imagine you do that, you walk out of the room, and then have you ever tossed and turned during the night because you had something on your mind that you couldn't get rid of? I imagine this was Joseph for a day, two days, three days. Imagine the wrestling in Joseph's heart for these three days. What am I going to do with my brothers? Am I going to keep them in prison? Am I going to get revenge? Am I going to tell them who I am? Imagine the wrestling that is going on. Imagine the wrestling that you would have to go through if you encountered your family after 22 years who sold you into slavery. Notice what's going on in Joseph's heart. But then in verse, or chapter 44, eventually he sends them away. And he says, basically, don't come back unless you bring Benjamin. 
like his younger brother. And because of this, Jacob doesn't want to send Benjamin because he's already lost Joseph. Benjamin is Joseph's full blood brother. And he doesn't want to lose Benjamin also. And so Jacob doesn't allow Benjamin to go to the point where they are just so out of food that Reuben says, Reuben, Judah, I don't remember which, one of the two, one of the brothers says, we could have been to Egypt and back two times. Like we've delayed going way too long, he says to his father. And then eventually Judah says that, hey, let's take him. And if I die, you can, as a payment for, or excuse me, as a payment for Benjamin's life, you can kill my own sons. So he puts his own family on the line. So they come back. Then they have this moment where they see Joseph again. And then Joseph sends them on their way. But this time he takes a precious item of his and he puts it in Benjamin's cup. No one knows. He frames Benjamin for stealing. Then he sends them on their way. Then he sends uh, his army or his guards to go after them, saying that they stole this. They get to them. They catch up with the 11 brothers, and they say, hey, you stole something. And they're like, no, we didn't. No, we didn't. No, we didn't. And then one of them says something really dumb and says, if you find who stole it, kill him. Like, they're that confident. Well, guess what? Judah, or excuse me, Benjamin had it in his bag. And it says, look at verse Genesis 44, verse 12. And he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. I want to pause here for a second, because we know in 42, we have this immediate reaction of seeing his brothers. He then sends them away. We don't know exactly how long has passed, but for them to make the journey multiple times, we're at least probably six months, if not a year out. And so you have this time where Joseph is every day looking, because you, you, know, you don't have email, you don't have Life360 where you can track your family members to see where they are. So every day he has this moment, it's like, are my brothers coming back? Are my brothers coming back? Are my brothers coming back? And he's looking and he's looking, and then finally they come back. But in that time, he's had a lot of time to process about what he is going to do the next time he sees them. He's probably planned this entire moment. And here's what I want us to see. I believe Joseph is intentionally testing his brothers. Why put the cup in Benjamin's sack? To ask this question, will they turn on Benjamin the way they turned on me to save their own selves? Will they turn on Benjamin or have they changed? How do I know the text is alluding to this? Is because of the story of Judah. When we look at the role of Judah within this story, if you remember, the story of Joseph begins back in Genesis 37. So if we go to Genesis 37, just flip there for a second. This is the story of Joseph. He's betrayed, he's sold into slavery. Then we get to Genesis 38. And it's this weird story about Judah that has nothing to do with Joseph. Like, it's almost like it doesn't fit within the story. And so we got to ask the question, how does it fit within the story? Here's how it fits within the story. Because in chapter 38, it's a story of how Judah did the wrong thing and was selfish and did not do what was best for his family. Chapter 38. But look what happens here with Judah in this situation. Joseph is testing to see whether his brothers will turn on Benjamin the same way they turned on him. 
but we see a maturing take place. We see a change take place represented in the life of Judah. Because in chapter 38, Judah, once again, does what he wants, selfish, and is not best for his family. But look what he does in Genesis 45, or excuse me, Genesis 44, verse 14. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground, and Joseph said to them, What deed is it that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Basically, Judah saying, Hey, take all of us. Don't kill Benjamin. We will all be your servants. Notice what he did with Joseph back in Genesis 37. They all chose themselves and sacrificed Joseph. And in this story, they're willing to all sacrifice themselves in order to save Benjamin. But Joseph gives them an out. He says, no, but he said, far be it from me that I should do so, meaning I should take all of you as slaves. Only the man whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Notice what he gives them the option to do. Just leave your brother behind, just left like you left me behind, and go back home. You are safe. We continue in the story, though, and we see that that is not what his brothers do. But they continue to plead. They continue to ask for forgiveness. They continue to show Joseph that they have changed. They continue to show Joseph that they, are, that they have repented of what they had done prior to. And then we get to Genesis 45. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother, Joseph, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Just imagine this moment if you're one of the brothers. I do every year. I love reading the story because it's just like the perfect like ending of a movie where it's just like, whoa, I never saw that coming. If you're reading the story from their perspective. And it says, And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Notice what he's doing. He's no longer holding the guilt against them. He's forgiving them. Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because of what you have done, basically. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years. And now there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing, nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and keep alive for you many survivors. So it is not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me the father to Pharaoh and the Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. What a, what a statement we get from Joseph. How is it that 22 years later, he's able to go Look at those who literally sold him into slavery and say, hey, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. It is their fault, but it's not your fault. It's, it was God's plan. We'll talk about that next week. We'll end this series talking about how does their sin and their mistake and God's sovereignty all fit together. But for this week, how can you look at them and essentially go, I forgive you? I want to I give a definition that one commentator gives about forgiveness. So we're going to begin to transition to our notes a little bit. But one commentator says this. Forgiveness is the release 
on the part of the creditor or the offended party of any expectation that a debt will be repaid or that an offender will receive punishment for an offense. So let me illustrate the definition this way. It's a simple illustration. You've heard me say it before. But if you steal $10 from me and I forgive you, then that means I don't expect you to give me the $10 back, essentially. That, that to some degree, for me to say I forgive you for what you have taken from me, it has cost me the very thing that you have taken. And for Joseph to, what, forgive his brothers, it cost him something that they cannot pay, but he had to pay. 13 years in prison and in slavery. But here in this moment, he forgives them. He releases them from their guilt with no plan ultimately to seek revenge. Now, this definition is not perfect, but it does give us a picture and how we describe it that the removal of an inappropriate offense in this way does not necessarily condone the offense or suggest approval of the offense, but it does recognize the the lack of a number of things. And this brings me to our fill in the blank, and we'll begin to really answer the question, what forgiveness is and what forgiveness is not. But first, what forgiveness is? Like, what is actually happening biblically when we talk about forgiveness? Right? Because if we simplify it, and here's where I want us to see that, that forgiveness is not necessarily an easy thing, And it's not always a simple thing, meaning it's not like, well, forgive and forget. It's not as simple as that. If anybody's been sinned hard against or wrongly against, it is not as easy as forgive and forget. That's too simple of an idea, biblical idea of forgiveness. And so as we look at what it is, I want to give and help us give a rounded understanding. So first, forgiveness is resisting revenge. When we choose to forgive someone, One of the things we're doing is we are resisting taking revenge. Joseph in this moment, at first, didn't resist that very well. For at least three days, after speaking harshly to them, he threw them in prison. The revenge had begun. But over a journey, over a series, we don't always understand the process he went through, but he came to a point where he did forgive them. And in fact, we read from Genesis 30 or 45 about forgiveness, but later at the end of Genesis, Jacob, his father dies. And then all of a sudden his brothers again think that Joseph is going to seek revenge, that he was just waiting till their father died before he sought revenge. And then again, he tells them in Genesis 50, no, I really did forgive you. Like, believe me, I'm not seeking revenge of you anymore. Romans 12, 19 says this, beloved, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. When you choose to forgive someone, one of the things you're doing is you're willfully choosing not to seek revenge against the person who has wronged you. Second, and similarly, but it's just another way of saying it, we're not returning evil for evil. 1 Thessalonians 5.15, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Guess who everyone includes? The person who has done evil to you. When you choose to forgive someone, you're choosing not to respond with their evil act with another evil act. I'm so grateful that God did not respond 
with our evil, with evil himself, but he responded with forgiveness. Thirdly, not only do we not resist, or excuse me, not only do we resist revenge, not only do we not return evil for evil, but we wish them well. Look at Luke 6.28. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. This saying, bless those who curse you. You know, when we look at Genesis chapter 1, and we talk about blessing, we usually read from number 6 at the end of service, talking about God's blessing. But in Genesis 1, we understand that when God blesses, it's a promise towards prosperity. It's a promise towards goodness. It's a promise for God's will to be done in our lives. So when we, when Luke 6 says, bless those who curse you, it's literally to pray blessings and hope goodness on your enemy. Like when we choose to forgive, we're we're saying that I still, despite maybe anger, despite frustration, despite a lot of emotions, I still want God's goodness on your life. I want God's grace on your life. I want God's mercy on your life. It's an act of wishing them goodness and not calamity, which brings us to number four. We are grieving. Forgiveness grieves at our enemy's calamities. It's it's just the opposite of number three. We wish them well and we grieve when God's blessing is not on their lives. Proverbs 24, 17, do not rejoice when your enemy falls and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles. It's real easy for the sinful Jonathan and me to be happy when an enemy bites the dust, so to speak. When an enemy doesn't or gets what I think they deserve. You know that feeling. It's a sinful, natural feeling in our hearts. But Scripture would tell us that true forgiveness would call for the blessing of God on them and not destruction, number four, not. And we grieve in their calamities that it is brought upon by their sin. In the same way, we grieve the destruction that sin brings into our lives. Number five, we pray for their welfare. We already said it from Luke, but Matthew five forty four. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. We are forgiving as an act when we are praying for their goodness. Once again, we are praying for their welfare. Like you forgive when you are able to do these things. Number six is is relationally the most difficult. Seeking reconciliation as far as it depends on you. Seeking reconciliation as far as it depends on you. Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. See, number one through five, as we think about what forgiveness is, can be done pretty much on your own. I can pray on my own, but I can't seek reconciliation on my own. Like this, recognize this is harder, but this is a part of it. As far as it depends on you, because it takes two to reconcile, so you can only control you. But if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all people. That includes our enemies. And so forgiveness, to forgive them, requires a step of reconciliation. How do we, once again, this is all rooted in the forgiveness that Christ has given us. That Christ did not just say your sins are forgiven, but he did that through the act of reconciliation. He did that by coming to us that when he was in the right and we were in the wrong, 
He did not wait for us to get our act together and come to him, as we often do when, when we say, well, they, need a, they wronged me, they need to ask for forgiveness. It's their responsibility to come and ask for forgiveness and reconcile. Maybe, but Jesus didn't wait for us to come to him. And in fact, if he would have waited, we would have never gone to him, Romans 3 tells us. But he, in forgiveness, took a step and an act of reconciliation towards us. And when we forgive others, it requires a step and act of reconciliation as much as it depends upon us. And then lastly, forgiveness is coming to their aid in distress. Coming to their aid. It means that we are willing to help an enemy. We think of uh, the good Samaritan. We think of the good neighbor. Who is my neighbor? And he, Jesus in that parable gives a story of enemies helping one another. That's what a good, loving neighbor does. But Exodus 23, 4, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey gone astray, you shall what? Bring it back to him. Meaning if your enemy has had a distress and needs help, you are to help them. Just because their enemy does not affect how you help or care for them. Thomas Watson, theologian 300 years ago, uh, I leaned on some of his writings a lot for today's sermon. Well, actually, all of these points come from a definition he gives that I've broken down into these seven points. But he, I'm about to read that definition to you. But he asked the question, when do we forgive others? Like, how do we know we've forgiven others? He says, here's how you know when you've forgiven others. When we strive against all thoughts of revenge, when we will not do our enemies mischief or harm, but we wish well to them, we grieve at their calamities, we pray for them, we seek reconciliation with them, and show ourselves ready on all occasions to relieve them or help them in their need. When we talk about forgiveness, there's a lot of emotions that come with forgiveness. And there's a lot of emotions that we got to process. And we're going to talk about that in just a second a little bit more. But I want us to see that forgiveness is a willing act that we choose to do towards others that do not deserve it. Which leads us, I think, understanding sometimes what forgiveness is, is to define what forgiveness is not. Here's what is not included in the definition that I just gave and is not included in the seven points above. First, forgiveness is not the absence of anger at sin. I can be angry at the sin that is done to me. I can be angry at the brokenness and sin in a situation and still show forgiveness. Forgiveness is not the absence of feelings of anger. Because in fact, we see Jesus get angry and I get angry and you and I get anger, angry. And so to say f- that we forgive someone is not to say, well, I'm no longer necessarily mad at you. That's part of it. I'm saying this is difficult, but, but it's to say like we could still be angry at the act that happened. That we can be angry at what has been done to us, but we can continue to trust God in the process. 1 Peter 2.23 says, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. What do you think about it? When talking about Jesus, when he was on the cross and when he was being mocked, I imagine he was not happy in that moment. 
imagine he just wasn't like, oh, well, forgiveness, all is good. But I imagine he was angry. I imagine he was hurt. But when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten in return. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So forgiveness is not the absence of anger at sin. Second, it is not the absence of serious consequences for sin. When we say we forgive, that is not to say that there are not consequences that still come with that forgiveness. Thomas Watson, again, I I mentioned he was helpful in this journey, but he asked this question, is God angry with his pardoned ones? Meaning, is God angry with those he has forgiven? And here's the answer he gives. Though a child of God after pardon may incur, may incur his fatherly displeasure, meaning that God is displeased with them, yet his judicial wrath, that's judgment because of sin, is removed. Though he may lay on the rod, yet he has taken away the curse. Correction may befall the saints, but not destruction. I want you to catch that end. Correction may befall upon saints, but not destruction. This gives us an idea of how we may at times have discipline of a child at home and still love them, or a leader within a church and still love them, or a criminal in society and still there be forgiveness. Forgiveness does not mean necessarily the removal of discipline. It is, in God's eyes, the removal of judgment but there is still discipline to even to those he has forgiven. Look at Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Meaning, Jesus and God's talking about his forgiveness of his people. But then look what he, the Hebrew writer says four chapters later in Hebrews 12. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son and daughter whom he receives. Four verses later. For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. Meaning that there, we will still face consequences for sins even after forgiveness. So it's not to say, well, we forgive you, there's no consequences. No, there can still be consequences and you still forgive someone. Now that's sometimes difficult to balance, but we understand that that is possible. Third, Forgiveness is not the same thing as trust. Forgiveness is not the same thing as trust. We are not bound to trust an enemy, but we are bound to forgive them. I'll, I want to see the, point out the difference there. How crucial is it for us to understand that we can say, I forgive you, but don't trust you. That is an accurate statement I believe that we can biblically say. Now, this does, I want, to be, I want to give a warning to our heart here, though. Because it's one thing for us to say accurately, I forgive you, but do not trust you with our mouths. But really with our hearts, we're saying, I never want to talk to you again. I never want to even try to trust you again. See, a lot of the times when we come to this statement, because this is a common thing that pops up, forgiveness can happen a lot of times than quicker than trust can be restored. But a lot of times, how do I know if, or how do you know if forgiveness is actually in your heart is are you willing to do the reconciliation to gain trust back eventually? 
And if you're unwilling to do the reconciliation to gain trust back eventually, then forgiveness is not the root of that statement when you say, I forgive you, but do not trust you. And that's why Matthew 18, 35 would say, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your what? Heart. This is, as we looked at forgiveness in the first seven, those were actions that could be tangibly seen. But I want us to point out forgiveness is more than just actions. It is something that happens in our hearts. And I want to say this. It's something that I cannot produce from my own heart. Forgiveness, when we say that it is difficult, what I mean by it is it is impossible in our own strength. In the same way that Ephesians 5 says that I am to love my wife as Christ loved the church, I read that and go, not possible, unless the Christ in me loves my wife through me. And in the same way, if forgiveness is from the heart, Jeremiah says, my heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. I need what Ezekiel describes as a new heart. A heart of stone and death has been taken out and a heart of life and flesh has been put in by the Spirit of God. And then and then alone can forgiveness flow from my heart in a biblical manner. So if you're going, I'm struggling to forgive, you might be trying to forgive purely in your own strength. But I want to once again point out that we see Joseph forgive three chapters later, but it might have been a lot longer of a journey for him from his perspective of forgiveness. It took him 20 plus years to come to the moment where he spoke forgiveness over his brothers. And so do not feel guilt and shame that forgiveness is difficult, but difficult doesn't mean we still shouldn't go on the journey. Lastly, and here's a strong statement, but I believe is biblically true. Forgiveness is not given to an unrepentant person. This is where forgiveness needs a complex definition. Because in a simple form, yes, we are called to forgive all. But when we talk about what true forgiveness is, at the end of the day, an aspect of that is what? Reconciliation. Because Christ has forgiven us, we have been reconciled unto him. Does he forgive us and are we reconciled unto him if we do not confess our sins unto him? Scripture would say no. Specifically, 1 John would tell us, flip there for a moment. 1 John would say, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Meaning if we, if we do not recognize our sin, if we do not confess our sin, if we do not admit our sin, you do not have the truth in you. You are not forgiven. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Yes, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But in the process of that, at the same time, in a complex understanding of God's sovereign will, is that we are called to confess sins. And that if we confess Jesus as Lord and we confess our sins, then he is faithful to forgive us of all unrighteousness. But forgiveness is not given to an unrepentant person. This is one of the reasons why I think Joseph tested his brothers. Will you turn on Benjamin like you turned on me? Are you repentant of what you did to me? And we don't know how Joseph would have responded had they not been repentant. But thankfully, we see that they were repentant. They had changed. And because of that, we see Joseph offer a forgiveness, a deep forgiveness that brought about a unity and reconciliation within them. See, the difference is, or hold on, let me back up. Let me read Luke 17. 
pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins again you against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Meaning that we recognize that even in repentance, there's a, the reality that the sin may happen again. And we are called to continue to forgive and forgive. But the difference is that when a, wrong, when a person who has wronged us does not repent with contrition and confession and conversion, meaning they turn away from that sin unto righteousness, he cuts off the full work of forgiveness, meaning full forgiveness cannot happen if someone is unrepentant. We, if, if we've been sinned against and the person is unrepentant, we can still lay down our ill will towards them. That is not to say we have to be bitter and angry towards them. No, that's our decision. We can let go of that. We can hand over our anger to God. We can do the seven things that we talked about at the beginning. We can seek good for them. We can pray for them. We can all of those things, but we cannot carry through with reconciliation and intimacy and relationship if both sides, if there's unrepentance in one of the sides. If someone's not truly sorry for for what they've done with you, it's hard for a relationship to be restored. And so to, a, to the extreme degree, meaning the fullness of what we see forgiveness to be, it can only truly be given to someone who is repentant. So, that, so when you hear statements like when someone sins against you um, harshly, or they sin against you in a lot of different ways, and your thought is, well, you should just forgive me and get over it. No, they shouldn't. That's not what we see fully in Scripture. Not if you're not repentant. Not if you're not truly trying to change. Not if you're not sorry. There is no expectation on them to forgive you fully. There's an expectation on them to not do harm to you. There's an expectation on them to, do, to pray for you and seek God's blessing on your life. But to offer intimacy and relationship and trust and reconciliation without your repentance, Jesus doesn't offer us that. And I want to point us back to Jesus as we even think about this type of forgiveness towards others. I want to make sure we're balanced here when I end with saying forgiveness is not given to those who are unrepentant. If you walk away and hear me say, ah, I have an excuse not to forgive someone because they didn't repent, and therefore I'm going to be angry at them, and therefore I'm going to hold it against them, and therefore I'm going to seek revenge, and therefore I want ill to happen to them, therefore I'm going to be happy when they crash and burn in life. If you walk away with that, you've missed it. You, you got to balance that truth with everything else I just said. That we don't seek revenge. Walk through those. We resist revenge. We do not return evil for evil. We wish them well. We grieve when they fail and they have calamities in their life. We pray for their welfare. We seek reconciliation and coming to their aid in distress. But we cannot have reconciliation if there is not repentance. Not with others and not with God. Scripture calls us that once we repent of our sins and turn unto him, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all our sins and all unrighteousness. So I ask you this question. Does your definition of forgiveness say that God forgives me no matter what and therefore I can do whatever I want? That's an unrepentant attitude and you are likely, according to 1 John 1, 8, are not in the truth, meaning you do not know the forgiveness of God, which means you're still under his judgment and wrath. But praise be to God that in his grace and his mercy, he freely offers forgiveness 
to all those who repent, turn of their sins, and turn unto, unto him. So I ask you today, Christian and non-Christian, meaning those who are in Christ and those who are not in Christ, do you see the beauty of God's forgiveness in your life today? See, this truth isn't just for those who are not in Christ. It's for me who's in Christ. It's for you who's in Christ. Because today, I still need to grasp the beauty of his forgiveness over my life. Do you see how he is forgiven and seeks reconciliation? Would you confess your sin and trust that he is faithful to forgive? And for the non-Christian in the room, maybe for the first time in your life, would you confess your sins unto Jesus and receive the forgiveness he offers you freely through the person of Jesus? And then as we worship him and rest in the forgiveness he has given us, might we then, filled with this spirit and his strength and his forgiving power, walk a journey of forgiveness towards others. It is not easy. It won't happen overnight. But it's a worthwhile journey to take, not only for you, but for others. And so let us be a people who understand Christ's forgiveness in our lives and display that forgiveness towards others especially those who do not deserve it. Because guess what? You and I especially did not deserve the forgiveness of Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we are so grateful for your forgiveness. And Lord, I pray that as we've processed this truth, it's not necessarily an easy thing to grasp. It's easy to understand you have called us to forgive. It's a whole nother thing to actually forgive. And so Lord, I just simply pray that as we think about forgiveness, it's easy for us to think about those who have sinned against us. Father, I pray for healing in our hearts towards those people and through those acts. Would you forgive and bring healing into our hearts? Would you allow us to forgive others, to not seek revenge, to, have, to pray for their blessedness and goodwill in their lives? Would you just help us forgive from the heart? Would you help us walk the difficult journey of reconciliation? Because you walk the difficult journey of reconciliation for us. So grateful for that. Father, I pray if there's anybody in here who does not know you as their Lord and Savior, meaning they have never confessed their sins unto you and, and cried out in repentance for forgiveness, that today would be the day that they do that. That today would be the day for the first time their heart cries out saying, Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Uh, uh, forgive me for what I've done against you. Please forgive me. And scripture says that if they do that from their heart, that you guarantee forgiveness. What a promise. You guarantee to forgive us. So I pray that forgiveness would come into hearts today. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. You can email us at info at newhopeny.org. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for those outlets is New Hope NYC. Our website is www.newhopeny.org. If you are in the New York City area, we have 4 p.m. worship gatherings on Sundays at 164 2 Gothels Avenue in Jamaica, Queens. We're praying for you, and we hope to see you soon.